Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Truhl, your host, and today I'm talking to Marion Bauer, author of The Life and Work of Joan Revere, Freud, Klein and Female Sexuality. And this was published by Rutledge in 2019. Marion Bauer has trained as a teacher, social worker and psychoanalytic psychotherapist. She has worked for many years in the child mental health services, including the Tavistock Clinic, and has edited and co-edited four books on various applications of psychoanalysis. She's currently co-editing a book on sexual exploitation. Welcome to the program, Marion. Thank you. It's uh, good to have you and good to have uh, someone who... Um, dive deep into the life of of Joan Revere, um, which has not been done so far, right? There has mm -hmm. been uh, an, uh, a publication of her collected works um, mm -hmm. with with a, a part, like a biographical chapter in it. But so far, we have not uh, had a full-length, book-length biography of her life. Uh, what What prompted you, what made you write about her? What What, what drew you to her? Uh, to be quite honest, I can't remember, um, but I think uh, I uh, got a copy of Athol Hughes' book. And what interested me, as well as the papers by Joan Riviere, was Athol's introduction, which was um, biographical, although I found later that quite a lot of bits of it were not terribly mm -hmm. accurate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I can remember sitting uh, in a very, very nice house in Hampstead uh, where I, I had gone for um, a seminar on Joan Riviere uh, with a copy of the book. Um, and um, I, I'm not sure really whether I thought then, oh, I, I'd like to write about it, but I certainly knew um, Uh, that she was um, a very uh, interesting character, and this is from Athol's uh, introduction, um, but also that she was a fantastically good writer. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Ron Britton, who was a very distinguished uh, uh, modern Kleinian, thought that she was probably the best psychoanalytic writer since Freud. Wow, that's high praise indeed. Yes. Um, uh, there's there's something about actually that this comes to my mind just now about her name, yes. which which is pronounced differently by some people. Um, mm. Some people, as herself, uh, pronounced her Revere, right? Like in a very yeah. uh, mm -hmm. anglicized anglicized manner, um, yes. and and this is actually connected probably to parts of her personality as well, right? Uh, her um, preferring that pronunciation. Mm. Um, the the first, first chapter um, in the book is actually titled um, A Well-Born Lady. Mm. And yes. that is something that she, she um, put a lot of emphasis on, right? Uh, well, she was... In some ways, it's quite important to say some ways, 
uh, a terrible snob, rather anti-Semitic, um, uh, and um, uh, in fact, her own family were very sort of bourgeois. Uh, mm -hmm. Her father was a solicitor, um, not a terribly good one, I suspect. Um, I think he preferred going shooting and fishing. Um, uh, and uh, her, her mother had been a, a governess, and her father uh, was a vicar. Um, so I don't think they were sort of obviously um, upper class, although they lived in Brighton, and it's a relatively small place, but quite sort of shishi. Uh, and, right. um, uh, you know, because it was relatively small, people mixed more probably than they would have done if it had been London, say. So supposedly, uh, Joan's father um, uh, went shooting with um, oh, Lord somebody who, who was in a nearby land owner and um, uh, the girl, when I say the girls, what I mean is Joan and her younger sister Molly mm -hmm. were taken by her parents to uh, sort of hunt balls, um, which I, you know, are, are usually uh, inhabited by the sort of upper middle class people of wherever they happen to be. I mean, I don't think, for example, that Joan ever went hunting. Um, but you know the hunt, the hunt balls, uh, you know where were where people, um, you know who were of a certain status would go and see each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and my, I, I imagine one of the reasons uh, that uh, Joan's family were invited. I mean, their family name was Verrill, in fact, which is right. a, a sort of old Sussex name. Uh, uh, because both the girls were very, very pretty. Uh, I mean, there's uh, some pictures of Joan um, uh, in the biography, and I can't remember if we put in a picture of her sister Molly, but Molly was, if anything, prettier, but probably not so right. clever. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that she was able to sort of mix with people probably a little bit above station and she married probably a little bit above her station although that's a bit complicated because of her uh, her, her uncle and aunt uh, this is her father's brother and his wife who were both mm -hmm. lecturers and classics at Cambridge and of course that was pretty unusual for a woman in those days um, to be a lecturer in classics mm-hmm mm -hmm. There's actually a lot of strands that that already go into into that answer. But before we go more into the direction of her uncle Arthur Verrill and and mm -hmm. his wife Margaret, I I think it would make sense to go back to Joan's childhood, mm. because I think that is that is really uh, that it's a big part of the book, and I think it's a really important part of the book that ha has not been. Um, elucidated as much in, in other publications. And I think that is something that the book really brings to the table, looking at the family she was born into and her first years of life. Yes, yes. And um, uh, maybe that sort of attracted uh, me because uh, she had an older 
brother um, who died when he was, I think, probably just a few hours old. Um, and, um, and in fact, uh, contrary to a lot of modern parents, Joan's mother did all the right things. I think they gave him a name, though I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, she held him, they, you know, they buried him properly. Uh, but I don't think she had got over it by the time Joan was born a year later. Uh, and she couldn't bear to hear Joan cry. Um, uh, so, you know, that, you, you know, that things had already been set in motion um, before Joan's birth. Um, right. And I, in fact, I, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting your comment about, you know, this perhaps hasn't been picked up in other biographies. One of the things that interests me because my professional life has spent has been quite a lot spent looking at the psychodynamics of a family. Uh, and I think within the psychoanalytic movement, uh, I mean, may, maybe it's less true now when people have perhaps more thorough, been more thoroughly analysed, but uh, certainly the psychoanalytic movement, uh, uh, when Joan was an analyst, um, uh, you could pick up um, the influences of family issues in right. what appeared to be theoretical um, disagreements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can describe that if if you want, unless you want to stick with the sort of other issues. You want I me think, to give an example? I think what is what is really interesting in the book um, is that there's not not just this emphasis on the death of her baby brother just after his birth, but also this sense of um, a total lack of, of almost total lack of understanding yeah. inner, inner life, inner mm -hmm. life of a child in her mother, right? You, you, you uh, drew heavily from, from her mother's diary. Mm. And whenever there's some, issues within the family her father tends to leave he goes away on on holiday or or they go away together on holiday her mother yeah. and father yeah uh leaving leaving baby joan or her, her or her sister in the care of uh, a nursemaid yeah um or or uh she describes uh the issues in somatic terms which, which I thought was really interesting that she she's always um, kind of concerned with um, Joan's somatic health, but mm -hmm. has kind of no concept of of mm -hmm. psychic life, of inner life, of the psychic needs of a child. Yes, yes, I think that's true. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I think Joan's father. Uh, I mean, in some families, I guess a father might take that on, um, but she's. There's there's no sense and sometimes no sense about the abandonment. So that the, there was one Christmas for no apparent reason, they sent Joan off and you know at Christmas with a servant, and and um, Joan's parents and I can't remember if um, her brother and sister were born went off to mother's family, who were mm -hmm. in fact very fond of Joan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seemed quite bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this also seems to be different from from uh, other families 
at that time, right? Because you used different sources in the book to describe how other mothers thought about, for example, their bereavement when they lost a child. And mm -hmm. um, it's, it seems to be special for Joan's family that there was such a lack of, of, of understanding of, of infantile needs. Mm. I think one problem is that, I mean, which I think I, I would, you know, sort of mitigate the way one might criticize Joan's parents is that Joan's mother was something like one of 12. Right. Uh, uh, and I think she probably came somewhere in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think in these enormous families, um, in, unless siblings sort of turn to each other, they could be very isolated. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Right. And there's something else that, that struck me about the early years or like the the, the childhood. And I, I'm really interested to hear your take on this because in the book, what is beautifully described is kind of the Victorian mindset, I'd say, mm -hmm. upper class mindset. And mm -hmm. what, what comes out beautifully is this sense of... Um, suppression of of sensuality of 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 sexuality there's a there's a an amazing passage in which you quote uh, or describe um the amount of clothes uh a woman mm. uh, a victorian woman would have to wear like layers upon layers just to cover yeah. everything up and mm. at the same time this makes for an intense focus on on sexuality and sensuality right mm. because it's what you cover what you try to cover up so intensely is always on your mind in a, in a way and yeah. this is this is something that seems to be be very true for joan like a very um she has a very refined sort of sensuality in mm. in her later life but one wonders how that that um would have been welcomed in her earlier life? It's very difficult to know. Um, uh, I mean, the aim in some ways was to get her married. Um, right. Uh, I mean, that, uh, that would have been quite usual in, in that sort of group of people, that sort of, uh, sort of upper middle class sort of family. And in some respects, um, uh, actually, her life wasn't like that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, she, and that really is to do with uh, her uncle and aunt Arthur Verrill and Margaret, his wife, because um, I think Joan's parents were sort of a, a bit in awe of them um, and rather competitive too. Uh, and they, Arthur Verrill and Margaret Verrill um, uh, persuaded Joan's parents to send her to this school, which is called Wickham Abbey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, my husband and I actually went off to, to um, visit it. And it doesn't seem to me to probably have changed very much since she was there. <laughs> right. um, 
And it was a very strange mixture, really, um, of something that, you know, got girls to be academic, but also sort of encouraged them to sort of explore things, uh, like they had a carpentry mistress. Uh, and mm-hmm. the music teacher, I think, had studied with Clara Schumann. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they had their little plots in the, the garden. But it was very, very usual at that time, in, and in girls' boarding schools, for girls, girls to have these crushes or possibly actual, actual sexual relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there's even a word for it. It was called gonages as in gone on. Um, uh, and um, in fact, the headmistress of the school had had a passion for this other woman when they were both at Girton. Um, and, um, you know, so I think it was a very funny mixture of, of what, um, you know, was very correct and so forth. The pictures of the headmistress make her look super correct. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, So there was that experience, and uh, Joan seemed to have some sort of weird breakdown in about 16 or 17, 16 probably, uh, where where for reasons that were not very clear, uh, she was packed off to uh, Gotha in Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly while she was there, she seems to have developed a crush uh, on a man whose name I can't remember. And she wrote to him several times uh, from England. And a friend of mine translated the letters. And they're they're very sort of girlishly sort of, you know, wanting to impress him and so on. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think she was relatively free from this more Victorian picture right. of, of sexuality. And even more so uh, when her mother, which is also very unusual, um, brought her to London and apprenticed her to Mrs. Ada Nettleship. And she was the dressmaker uh, for Ellen Terry, who's a very famous actress, right. and uh, Henry Irving. So both very, very famous actors and actresses. And they, I, I'm sure they certainly had an affair. Um, and... Um, she also made dresses for people, you know, who were going to society, weddings and things like that, or, or even mm. getting married. And the, the level of artistic creativity that she put in was enormous because uh, there's a painting by uh, Sargent that used to be in the National Gallery, I don't know if it still mm. is, of uh, Ellen Terry wearing one of Mrs. Nettleship's dresses when she played Lady Macbeth and the whole mm-hmm. dress is thousands of beetle wings you know, mm-hmm. that sort of rather iridescent sort um, and the people who worked there uh, got to go to rather less salubrious type theatrical performances as well mm-hmm. because Mrs Nettleship got all these tickets and um, mm-hmm. One of the girls who worked there kept a diary, and the interesting thing is it's in the Tate Gallery, this diary, uh, which you know shows how much Mrs. Nettleship was seen as an artist. Um, right. Uh, so I think she had a rather strange um, experience, and of course, 
as a friend of mine pointed out, you know, if you're in a dressmaker's, it's all very intimate and private and so on. And physical, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you <laughs> pin people into their dresses. Right, um, right. Um, so, 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 let, yeah, please go on. No, I was just going to say, I think she had a quite strange world. And she, according to Freud, she'd had a number of affairs with men by the time mm -hmm. she had her analysis with him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she she did not uh, go on to Cambridge as as her uncle and uh, her aunt Margaret would have wished probably, but still they, it seems like they were sort of instrumental indirectly in directing her towards not the academy but towards psychoanalysis with their involvement with the society for psychical research right maybe yes. maybe you could say maybe you could say a few words about that yes well i, I think that uh, i mean that's very interesting because actually cambridge university is where most english people as far as i'm aware uh would have found out about psychoanalysis um uh -huh. uh, it's not the only place but anyway it, it is the you know, at that time it would have been. Um, mm -hmm. But um, after the, the end of the First World War and, and also leading up to the end of the First World War, there was a lot of preoccupation with dead people. Um, but the people had lost the faith they used to have that, you know, they, could, they would see them in heaven. Um, uh, and they began to look for ways of one mind linking with another. And that's where the Society of Psychical Research came in. And um, uh, I can't remember the name of the chap. Uh, th there were a couple of Cambridge dons who started it. And one of them uh, somehow found out about Freud and persuaded Freud to write a paper for the Society um, journal, um, uh, which was, you know, uh, uh, he, Freud actually, I think, wrote it in English uh, because his English is mm -hmm. very good and I expect he wanted to show it off. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. a lot of people think it's a very important paper. I don't particularly think so myself, but <laughs> I suppose it was important in the sense that, that, that it was the starter. And uh, there is a book called something like Freud in Cambridge because Quite a lot of undergraduates got interested in psychoanalysis um, right. around that time. I, I don't think it's necessarily anyone who Joan knew, but uh, the one person that would have been relevant though, would have been James Strachey, right. um, who was Arthur uh, Verrill was James Strachey's tutor. Right. And his favorite by far, right? He's, yes, uh, yes. No, no. He, he had a, Arthur Verrill had an, a, a reputation for you know having this very interesting sort of thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And and so this is probably um, how Joan got first introduced to psychoanalysis theoretically, but mm -hmm. then later on in her life. Um, especially after the death of her father mm -hmm. she she was already married to evelyn revere by then right but yes, that's yeah. that's when her life sort of started to fall apart 
in mm. in a way or like or she had like what what could be described as a nervous breakdown um I, yes yeah I please think it was, please no sorry please go I, on I, I think it was probably more of a postnatal breakdown after she had a baby right 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 so you you would not see it as connected to to her father's death as some other biographers would uh, no, I don't mean it was unconnected. Um, it just seemed to me to be very chronologically linked to the baby. Right, right. And she behaved and, like someone with having a postnatal depression. Right, right. And in some sense, she behaved quite similar to her mother as well, right? Like to when her mother had her. Not in the sense that she was depressed, but that she really seemed to have no tolerance for Diana, her, her mm. child's. Yes. Well, I think Joan Riviere and uh, Melanie Klein could have won prizes for bad mothers. <laughs> right. Well said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I, I mean, both of them really, uh, you know, what they both wanted to do was to leave their children with someone else. Right, right. But also, also both their mothers uh, before them, right? I mean, yes, Melanie yes, Kleins and Anja. Yes, yeah. yes. No, no, I, 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 I agree, actually. And um, I hope there'll be time to sort of say how this changed in Joan's thinking. Right, right. But uh, just to, to go on sort of in, in the timeline of her life, mm -hmm. um, she had, she had this, this, kind of long long stretch between like in the in the 1910s um especially mm. um early 1910s when when she was down with the nerves so to say mm. but also yeah. with a lot of uh, of some uh, um ailments that she understood to be somatic mm -hmm. and she went from one doctor to another and then mm -hmm. even to some some nursing homes right Yes, one in Wolverswick, I think, which is ironic, considering that was where the Freuds all hung out. Right, right, right. But but then in uh, 1916, she started analysis with Ernest Jones. Yes. In fact, he actually belonged from a different wing, as it were, of the beginning psychoanalysts in England, because he'd actually been involved for longer Um And he was, he came from a not terribly well-off family and he, he worked in London um, and um, he ended up going to, I can't remember, Canada or America. really because, Canada, yeah. Yeah, uh, really because of some rather dubious things that he'd done as a doctor in England. He obviously mm -hmm. had a real difficulty with boundaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is something that also came up in his analysis with Joan Revere, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, she she stayed on very friendly terms with him, and even when she was very old and he was very old, they were still writing to each other. And I think she was always grateful to him for sort of getting her started. Um, but she did go to Freud, really, I think, to undo the effects of the analysis with Ernest Jones. Right. Right. So she stayed in analysis with Jones from 1916 to mm. 1921. Is that is that correct? Uh, um, I think so. Um, 
some of the sort of facts and figures have sort of slightly slid into the back of my mind. Um, I, I think so, mm. yes. I, I, I'm not absolutely sure it was quite as long as that, um, but it, maybe it was, because, um, uh, I mean, her experiences with him did seem to take up an awful lot of his life. Right. Um, I mean, he's said to have lent her his holiday house um, when she was in analysis with him, right? Yes, yes. And uh, he confided in her about his wife dying and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So very, very non-boundaried, as he said. Totally. But then, then also there was a very intense transference love that developed. Yes, yes. Um, and something like, like I think um, this comes out really well in the book uh, that there was like not really um a chance for joan to 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 do proper reality testing when he mm -hmm. was actually so seductive towards her mm -hmm. yes 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 no i I, th i think that's right actually it is strange because he you know he's he was after all uh an analyst in london for many many years And I don't know what he was like with other people. Mm -hmm. What I mean, seems to I, be so, yeah. I, I, I mean, go. I think he probably was a bit in love with her. After all, she looked very nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be something, something about her effect on on men or on 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 analysts in general, because. There's some something of that of that intensity of of affection, also in Freud, right? I mean, she goes mm. on to have analysis with Freud in 1922, um, mm. kind of ambivalently sent there by Jones, mm. as he said, to to undo some of the damage he'd done, mm. and, and and Freud kind of kind of is is sort of infatuated as well with her I, i i mean that's at least that's the sense one gets from the letters that ernest jones and him sent back and forth while the analysis is going on and he's really really scolding jones like all yeah. the time like really yeah. really hard on him and i thought yeah. that was very interesting yes um i think freud was very susceptible to attractive women of all sorts you know, like Lou Andrea Salome, mm -hmm. what, you know, mm -hmm. so I think, I think she wasn't the only one. Uh, but I, th th there is some quality uh, uh, about his relationship with her. It wasn't just that he thought she was attractive, which I'm sure he was quite able to sort of think about, but the fact that she became his favorite translator. And I, and I don't think there's anything false about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did speak very good German, you know, after that year in Gotha, but I don't think that was the only reason. I mean, you know, I think he he, he would send her a letter saying something like, I, I've got this rather delicate and difficult uh, paper and I want only you to do it. Right. But this is also probably due to her her absolutely, like, impeccable sense of style, right? I mean, she's... Mm -hmm that comes out in her own writing as well she her, her prose is so flawless so evocative yeah. so muscular that this is something that 
I mean, you'd have to agree with Ron Britton, right? Saying that, mm-hmm. yeah, she's she's uh, second only to Freud in her qualities as a writer, and that would probably have made her the perfect translator. Yes, yeah, so in that sense, you know, he's, it's not such a, you know, a crush on her, but also a realistic idea that she uh, would be a good translator. She also had a quality of extreme meticulousness which I think mm-hmm. is linked to the dressmaking. So, you know, she would work over, um, you know, stuff until she was really happy with it. In fact, it's very mm-hmm. interesting that I don't know why this happened, actually, because when, I'm sorry, it's jumping a bit ahead, but it's linked to this. When uh, Melanie Klein came to live in England, uh, Alex Strachey, who she got to know in Berlin, translated her book, on the psychoanalysis of children. Uh, and um, she made a number of very consistent, <laughs> Alex did, made a number of very uh, misleading mistakes in the translation, uh, which mm-hmm. distorted how Klein's ideas came across. Now, if she'd given, if, if Klein had given that to Joan, uh, that wouldn't have happened. Right. Right. I I like to go back to Joan's analysis with Freud mm-hmm. for a moment because yeah. I thought um, in connection to to her role as as a translator there was something very interesting in the book uh, in which uh, uh, Herbert Rosenfeld is actually quoted as as saying that mm-hmm. um, Joan resented the fact that Freud put her to use as his translator before she could even relate to him as an analyst. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting because, and, and, and let me just connect it to, to one other point um, mm-hmm. because the book, the biography made me think about um, analysts and their analysis and, and how sometimes there's, there's a, a transgenerational mm-hmm. um, um not not trauma but but some some patterns are repeated and i i was mm. thinking about how how winnicott who was analyzed by joan revere um mm. put put masud khan to use as as his uh the, as editor of his works and mm. i i couldn't help but see the connection how 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 both of them winnicott and freud put their respective um analysis to use to work for them uh, i thought that was really interesting um i i see what you mean <laughs> but um uh, actually i think the spirit would have been very different right um uh because i think freud certainly didn't behave like a modern analyst Behave, but then he was the first one. So I mean, he was obviously <laughs> learning right. on the job. Um, right. And for example, Freud didn't seem to use the negative transference very much, if at all. Uh, and um, so uh, I, I think that um, Freud's, you know, sort of Freud putting Joan to work. I I, I, I I think he'd also just made a very realistic assessment that this is a very this, uh, 
I mean, right at the beginning of Joan's analysis, they had a complete ding dong about what language they were going to speak. And she right. won, really. <laughs> Poor <laughs> Freud had to speak in English. I think he may have felt he was going to get his revenge. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I, I think Freud was sort of mostly clean with his patients. You know, he didn't. Yes. He wasn't trying to seduce them, or if he did, it was probably a bit sort of not really disruptive. And um, I think Winnicott was different. Uh, right. Uh, I, 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 I think, though, I, I, you know, I think what I have learned about Winnicott is, first of all, he found it very difficult to deal with people who were difficult. Uh, and he seems to have promoted uh, a sort of rather idealizing uh, transference um, and the whole—I don't know whether I, you probably know this story—but the whole thing about Masood Khan was really the most terrible situation, where Masood Khan uh, seems to have uh, abused, in a psychological way, a, a patient whose name will come back to me a bit, but someone very well known, Win Godley—that's uh-huh. right—who uh-huh. was, who was uh-huh. very well known at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And Wynne Godley eventually, compl- I think he eventually complained to the Institute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, I mean, and the Institute then went through this terrific soul-searching about, you know, how this could happen and da-da-da-da-da. But Winnicott seems to have known about it and not acted on it. Right, right. Uh, and this is interestingly, I think, no one ever talks about Winnicott in a bad way. In, in fact, I mm-hmm. think he was a very, very um, destructive person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he always tried very hard not to pay his two analysts, um, uh, James Strachey and Joan Riviere, except he didn't let him get away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually a beautiful part of the book uh, where you describe how she she dealt with him not not wanting to pay or not wanting to pay yes. the full full fee for analysis. Yeah. And it, it really comes out how in later life she um, really knew her worth yes. and was and had a lot of empathy. Yes. At the yes. same time. Yes. No, no. I, I, I think it's a model of good practice, her letter to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of trying to take a psychoanalytic view of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, a, you know, so... It's a pity that James Strachey wasn't just as firm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But not not wanting to get uh, ahead of time too much, um, I think this is the point where um, where we have to talk about Melanie Klein coming mm-hmm. on the scene, right? Uh, yes. In yes. Uh, in in nineteen twenty five, she she does the lecture series in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joan Revere is a, a big part of a kind of um, rolling out the red carpet for her. Mm-hmm. You could say that, right? Yeah. Like really protecting her against harsh criticism yeah. uh, in, the, in the years to follow and even like um, going up uh, uh, to the controversial discussions. Um organizing her defense practically right i mean yeah um and what 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 do you think 
was it that drew Joe and Revere to Melanie Klein, uh, personally and theoretically? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think it's very, very interesting, actually. The, the two most important men, and I, I, I don't think her husband was as important, uh, or two most important people in Joan Revere's life were Klein and Freud. Um, and she was very anti-Semitic. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I, I think probably it's certain Jewish characteristics that she liked because it's a sort of emotional warmth. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that, that, that was rather absent in her early life. Um, but she'd already met Klein before Klein came to London, I think in 1922, um, as a, conf uh, you know, one of these sort of congresses. Um, I think that I don't think this is conscious. I think, I think she and Klein had some quite superficial good links, like they were both absolutely obsessed by clothes. Mm -hmm. um, so that they had some sort of girly type shared interests. Um, uh, and, uh, but I think um, that this is something I, I'm actually struggling, struggling to think about at the moment, actually, but... It's very interesting because Joan was a very clever woman and uh, she always slightly deferred to Klein, which I, I, I find interesting because mm -hmm. I, I do think Klein, you know, was, you know, uh, the best anal analyst since Freud. But I still think that Joan was very considerable. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know quite why she slightly deferred to her. I think I think it's creativity of that she really admires in people. Um, and, um, but I think there's a, an unconscious um, link that she has with Klein, though it may not even have been unconscious, is that through Klein, she's able to do a certain amount of reparation uh, in her links with her, her mother. Because I think she didn't have a very good view or relationship with her mother. And right. uh, Klein's theory, you know, which has got a, a theory of reparation, um, allowed her to sort of um, think about that sort of relationship. And actually, uh, before you rang today, um, I was looking again uh, at a paper which she gave, I mean, it's, it, it's a fascinating paper really, because she, in 1936, there was a series of exchange lectures between Vienna and um, England, um, mm -hmm. because Jones thought quite rightly, they were beginning to drift apart a bit, and particularly England in a way, because they, they, they were you know, following Melanie Klein. And so Joan, must have gone in a train across Europe in 1936 to Vienna, uh, landing up on Freud's birthday mm -hmm. to present the work of Melanie Klein. Um, and I think having presented it, I don't know if, if, if Freud was there. I suspect he probably would have been. And then she went to see him the next day. Uh, uh, but there's a very interesting bit in this paper, which is published in a... Uh, I think I've referred to it in the book. It was published in the International Journal 
And mm-hmm. she talks about a child and the mother on a beach. And the child um, brings these pebbles to the mother and lays them in her lap, which uh, Joan thinks that, um, you know, it's, it's making reparation to the mother symbolically for all the dead babies. Right. And uh, so I think from that point of view, the relationship with Klein, uh, I mean, obviously it, it, it was a very complicated relationship. Um, and in fact, she sometimes acted up, you know, sort of was very difficult with Klein, I think, because of uh, you know, some similarities with her own mother. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, but I think that it did give her an opportunity to feel she there was someone she could make reparation to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might also have been true about her aunt, Margaret Verrill, because she didn't go to Margaret's funeral. And I think that probably hung over her a bit. Um, right, right. Uh, There's also, if I if I would just may may jump in. Uh, there's also, I think, a sense of mutuality in a way uh, mm-hmm. in their work because a lot of concepts that Melanie Klein uses at a much later stage mm. um, are actually coined by Joan Riviere much much earlier, and this goes unacknowledged for for the most part. But concepts yeah. like the defense formation, yeah. um, her, her thinking about yeah actually about about reparation and about mm. about um envy and jealousy and their their uh, yeah. internal psychodynamic connection uh, this yeah. is something that she puts forward in much earlier papers than than melanie klein yeah and th- yeah. Th- this is really interesting i have a question about that because i've read uh, uh, this this um a, a german biographical um account actually of joan Ruiz's uh, life and uh-huh. by, by Lily Gust, and oh, and she right. seems she seems to think um, that they're later falling out, like they're they're kind of not being as close as they used to be. Joan Rivier and Melanie Klein is partly mm-hmm. connected to that that unacknowledged um, pioneering work of of uh, of Joan Rivier for for Melanie Klein. Mm-hmm. I. Don't agree with that, actually, because, okay. uh, first of all, um, I, I think they had a relationship in which there was quite a lot of overlap between the two of them, you know, right. particularly in the area of female sexuality. I think they both sort of got their um, fangs into Freud about that. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think the thing that upset Joan... Uh, was, uh, and I don't, I don't think it was sort of conscious probably on her part, was um, the fact that as time went on and Klein became increasingly popular, Joan didn't come first with her anymore. Right. And I think, because she says things like, um, she wrote a letter, which I think I put in the biography, you know, about the war, saying, you know, I want you to tell me first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I think that with people, you know, as Klein got these, you know, very talented pupils and was very absorbed in her new ideas, uh, she was, she felt very sort of hurt 
that she wasn't the first. Um, mm. And I think that replicates her child experience. She wasn't the first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think they were probably more comfortable about the duplications of ideas. I mean, Klein acknowledges Joan got there first in, in her paper on envy. Um, it's in a footnote. Right. Um, Right, that's a footnote. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so if she, I mean, obviously she could have put it in the text, but uh, I, I don't feel that was the thing, really. I, th- I thought they were probably quite fluid um, in theoretical terms, and they, but I think Klein herself had picked up that Joan was quite possessive because that they both wrote uh, something about relationships between women in a book by John Rickman. Uh, or John Rickman sort of produced this book, and um, she. Now, come on. Sorry, let me get this the right way around. Uh, they're talking about friendship between women, uh, and Melanie Klein says in her bit about friendship between women, you know, it's very important that it doesn't get too close or be too possessive or words to that effect. And I, mm-hmm. I think she was thinking a bit of Joan then. Mm-hmm. 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 I mean, I think she was a more ruthless person than Joan. Joan, despite Joan being nasty to people sometimes and scary, uh, I, I don't think she was ruthless to them. I mean, you know, I think the letter to Winnicott over his fees, I think, I think right. you're right saying it's quite kind, really. Right, um, right. Um, and I think, I think Klein could be far more ruthless than her. Right, right. Um. Marian, as as we're sort of drawing to a close here, um, we haven't haven't talked a whole lot about her papers, about yeah. Joan Rivier's uh, own um, own contributions, which are marvelous, to be honest. Like just, mm. I've I've been rereading all her her papers for uh. for this interview, and it's just it's a real pleasure to read them. Like I was saying before, her style is so mm. uh, so evocative. Yeah. Um, and and still at the same time, I, I was wondering while I was reading the biography, um, why why do you think it is that this has not been recognized to 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 a large extent? Right? I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a very good point. Well, there, there is this funny thing, you know, uh, about the hostility to her, but then I think the Kleinians all sort of joined forces against her. Because I don't know if I've put it in the book. Uh, because she she uh, wrote a letter to I can't remember this analyst's name. Uh, yeah, it's it's in the book. I remember. It's in the book. I, I, yeah. Okay. Well, I won't, yeah. I won't repeat it. Um, and um, I, I I don't know. She's actually though she's a wonderful writer. It, you've got to really work to understand what she's saying. At least I have to really work right. to understand what she's saying. I, I wonder if she's been a bit of a whipping boy for Klein, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. really, uh, because, I mean, she was very explicitly um, defensive of Klein. And the book um, that I've got of papers which were given during the controversial discussions, I mean, which were edited by her. So she would, you know, be fronting up the defense of Klein. 
so I, I think that I, I, I don't know. Perhaps it makes people more more anxious to be hostile to Klein. Um, and right, Joan, I understand. Yeah. Yes, you know that because um, I think Klein is more of a mother figure because of her work mm-hmm. with children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And although Joan was very interested in that work, she 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 didn't work with children ever. I don't think. Um, so, yeah, so I think she's been easier to use as a whipping boy, easier to ignore. Um, uh, people are envious, really. You know, the analytic world isn't, isn't full, I mean, in, in theory, it ought to be full of perfectly analyzed people. But, <laughs> right. Um, uh, but it's I, really interesting. Yeah. I think this is also something that she herself uh, alludes to. Uh, during the controversial discussions, when when she responds to Melanie Klein's question, if if she would organize, uh, kind of her defense, and um, Joan Revere saying, I, you know, I have no interest in being a scapegoat once more. Yes, um, exactly. And and I think she she actually picked up on that point herself. Yes, yes, yes. I I think she was probably a bit sorry, really, about that. And what's mm. also very sad is that she wasn't friendly really with any of the Kleinians. Um, right. As she got older, she, she was friendly with Jones and the Strachies and possibly a few other people. But um, you know, she didn't. She wasn't sort of rewarded for her support of Klein. Right. Right. Well, I think your biography really plays part in you know kind of doing doing reparations to the damage done to her and i think it's a really important piece of work um for all of us who want to yeah really get into joan revere's work and life and uh yeah thanks thanks for for your work and for writing the book okay thank you and thanks for the conversation marion i really enjoyed it oh good that's fine yes i enjoyed it too it's nice to talk about her again Great. So thanks very much and uh, have a good day. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.